Well, I've got this uh, thought, thoughts, set of thoughts in my mind here, and I can't uh, claim that it's totally well developed and it's going to come off really well. It's kind of like an experiment in speaking and thinking, okay? So uh, you'll have to join me this day for my thought experiment. But I, I see this tension uh, all throughout the Bible between um, the specialness of Jerusalem and then the fact that when Christ comes, he comes for all the world. So there's this tension between the specialness of the Holy Land, in Jerusalem in particular, and then, of course, the Temple and the Temple Mount in particular. But then it's sort of like, well, but Jesus comes for everybody. So how do we, how do we resolve this tension? Um, you know, you look in the Old Testament, and when the Old Testament um, prophesies and foresees the, what's called the eschaton, which means the culmination of all history and, the, and basically the fulfillment of all the purposes of God that he's had from eternity for creation. Um, the, the, the coming or the advent of the kingdom of God, its actual final establishment. When the Old Testament portrays that, it focuses a lot on Jerusalem. We see this in our text here from Isaiah. The mountain of the Lord's house, which is the temple, will be raised up above it's like you can almost visualize some kind of like a tectonic plate shift or some sort of an earthquake or some kind of a geological event and this this the mountain of the lord's house which is you know probably a 200 foot walk i mean it's not big jerusalem is a dinky little place but you can imagine this this little tiny hill suddenly going and become this huge mountain higher than any other mountain and, and, and then the temples on top of that. And all the people of the world from everywhere all start climbing up this mountain and start streaming to the temple. And uh, it's, a, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor. There's no doubt about it. And I think the ancient Jewish people before the coming of Christ could see that it was symbolic. Yet at the same time, they would still think it has to do with Jerusalem. And, and they weren't crazy to think that. And in fact, the apostles themselves... I believe, really, for the first, I'd say maybe, I don't know, I have to get to my history straight, but maybe the first eight years, ten years, they were intending to hunker down in Jerusalem. And they were expecting to basically, uh, the mission of the church would basically just flow out of Jerusalem. They believed that they were fulfilling this passage. And uh, Peter and... Uh, John, and then James, the brother of the Lord, the so-called brother of the Lord, very interesting figure, who became, who's, who's really ultimately understood to be the, the first bishop of Jerusalem. James, Peter, John are referred to as the pillars. So St. Paul refers to them as the pillars of the church in Galatians. And uh, what that meant, the, the word pillar is talking about, it's a reference to the temple. And so the, the, from the earliest days, when I'm talking about day one, you know, year one, year two of the apostolic church, they're understanding the, themselves as like, we are the temple that Isaiah is prophesying about. And then the leaders would be the pillars, okay, and especially the big guns, Peter and, and John and James. The book of Acts, so Luke appreciates this reality as well. He, he portrays the gospel flowing forth out of Jerusalem in a kind of a swirling, circular manner like this all around the world. So he, he, he sees this kind of movement to Jerusalem as validated in the sense that the gospel 
goes out from Jerusalem in, in a reverse manner, but it's the, still the epicenter there is Jerusalem. You know, there were, I, I think, the fact of how is this evangelization process going to work? Jesus spoke in very mysterious um, manners and ways and modes, and so it wasn't like he said at one point, okay, guys, now you really got to get this down. Okay, first of all, when you guys go and you evangelize the non-Jewish people in the world, you got to make sure and understand that all the Old Testament rituals are totally done away with. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't like. I don't think Christ, Christ was not that explicit. He wasn't like that. He didn't give that kind of. He spoke. He said that. He taught that, but in an indirect fashion, such that it left the apostles wondering. It was a. It was a question right, right from the get go. And when the Holy Spirit was 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 given being given to Gentiles without them being circumcised, it was it was a surprise. It had to be understood, and there had to be some kind of um, you know appropriation of this reality. In, in Peter, for example, with Peter uh, and Cornelius in Acts chapter, I think it's uh, maybe ten, something like that. So, and then of course Paul's whole ministry focuses on this issue. And Paul had a clear insight into this. This revelation was given to him in a, in a very special manner of, of all the apostles. Um, but with, with even Peter. And, and, you know, Jerusalem was what it was all about. Judaism was what it was all about. The Old Testament law was what it was all about. Um, I think because of that lack of clarity on that issue from the get-go, the church in Jerusalem, which was the mother church at first, uh, it had various factions and parties and opinions and whatnot, and you had a whole contingency of very zealous Jewish Christians who were no joke. They weren't a bunch of losers or idiots or anything like that. They were very pious and very zealous for Jesus, okay, not just for the Old Testament law, but for Jesus as well. They saw Paul as an enemy, and they would actually track, follow him out, and they're like, okay, this guy, this scumbag is going to really cause trouble for the church. We're going after him. So Paul would go and he would set up churches in Galatia and these other places and these guys would come up behind him when he left and they would re-evangelize his people. And that's why he's writing these letters saying, what are you guys doing? Don't listen to these people. But it says they're coming and, they, and they're coming in the name of Peter and John and James. It's not like these guys are just out of the blue. You know, they've got real clout. They've got real authority. They're saying, Paul, where did this guy come from? He had some experience in Syria. We're coming from Jerusalem. We're coming from Peter and, and John and James. We're the real deal. Paul never knew Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry. All of these guys did. This is the real deal. Don't listen to Paul. It's not that crazy. These, these false apostles, what, their whole approach to this whole question was not that crazy. There was enough ambiguity that where Peter himself and James himself had to kind of like work this out, and uh, and Paul had an insight. But we see with, with that that kind of Paulian spirit is the idea that no Jesus comes for all the nations as they are, and they don't need to be circumcised. Um, how do we resolve this tension? I don't know, but uh, here's a suggestion. Uh, well, I, yeah, I think I do know. Um, it's about it's about Christ Himself. Christ is the temple. Christ is the new temple. And you know, we in our opening hymn when we're singing, I think to myself, you know, people look east, right? It used to be the case in the Old Testament that all of the people, wherever they prayed, wherever they were in the world, 
would it, would it target and aim their their prayers to Jerusalem? Okay, even even Muslims, Muslims they do it towards Mecca, but you know what they originally did it to Jerusalem. Okay, because Muhammad was following the practice of the Jews of his day. Muhammad basically took this kind of you know Frankenstein's monster part of Judaism, part of Christianity, part this, part that, and kind of put it all together. But one of the practices he put in there was the praying towards Jerusalem. And Solomon says that in the Old Testament. He says, Lord, whenever anybody's outside of the Holy Land, when they pray, they're going to turn to this temple, this house, and and their prayers are going to be heard when they pray towards the temple. So this was the Jewish practice. Uh, but you know what was the early the Christian practice was not to pray. They prayed in a particular direction, but it wasn't to the temple. It was to the east. Why is that? Because Christ Himself is known as the Orient. He is the Sun that rises and brings light and scatters the darkness with His coming, with His advent. So the ancient Christians would always pray to the east because it was a sim- symbol of them praying to Christ. And our churches, St. Michael's, you know, you've heard me say this before in a homily, St. Michael's is perfectly oriented to the East, perfectly. Follows that ancient practice. St. John's and Clive, they're not able to do that because of whatever civic constraints or whatever. But St. Michael's is perfectly oriented. And the old practice of the priest praying with his back to the people, that wasn't what he's trying to do. Like, I'm being rude. I'm not talking to you guys. It was, we're praying together to the East. Christ, because Christ was the focus, not Father Happy. Woo, look at me. Um, so the resolution to this really is it's about Jesus. And so wherever Jesus is, that's the temple. Wherever Jesus is, uh, that is the, the source of light for all nations. He's the sun that, that brings light, not just on Jerusalem, but over the entire world when he rises upon us in his coming. And we pray for his coming in our hearts this day, that he would illumine all the dark places, and that there would be no factions or divisions within our heart, but that we would be totally true to him and consistent and and whole, um, uh, to be ready for him, to prepare for him. So he's got a, a welcomed dwelling place when he comes to us on Christmas.